Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Well, I'm doing a process right now that I've been doing for a while and trying to get it down to uh, my own style, which I think I have. And it's basically just uh, getting a board, whether it's a plywood board or I cover it with a little canvas, and I cut out other canvases and make patches and glue them on. If you ask Dominic Montiglio who he is, he'll say he's an outsider artist from Brooklyn, New York. Outsider artist, in this case, refers to someone who is self-taught. But what I do basically is just think way down deep of all the images that, you know, I've expressed, I've experienced, excuse me, in, you know, my time on this planet. Dominic's paintings are dark and heavy. A kaleidoscope of distorted figures, aggressive brushstrokes, and thick paint. A friend and ex-girlfriend of Dominic's, Dali, a pseudonym she's explicitly requested, describes his work best. His paintings are, oh, it's, it's almost like uh, if your mind is racing a million miles a minute and you have really high anxiety, his canvases are, uh, they're all over the place. There's so much going on. I, I look at some of the work and I, I almost feel like he's, He's living out a nightmare, but it's, it just happens to be on a canvas rather than while he's sleeping. Dolly is not only familiar with Dominic's work, but also his process. She spent hours sitting with him in their railroad apartment in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, watching him paint. You could just hear him exhaling. Like, I would look into his eyes and I wouldn't recognize the guy I was just out to dinner with. This is a totally different human, because I guess he was going through something else. And those feelings, or whatever that were manifesting inside of him, were coming out. But there's one painting he's never found a way to articulate on canvas. A nightmarish image that comes to him over and over again. A dream that may be the key to understanding the demons that haunt 
Dominic Montiglio. I mean, I have a, a recurring dream where I leave Nino's house and his Cadillac is parked in the driveway. And when I walk out the door, I'm walking up the driveway and Nino, Roy, Chris, Anthony, Joey, they're all hidden under Nino's Cadillac. And as I'm walking by, Roy looks at me and goes, hey, Dominic, come to hell with us. Who are Chris, Joey, Anthony, Nino, and Roy? Prolific hitmen. Killers with a body count in the hundreds. Killers who were also Dominic Montiglio's friends. Friends who many say he betrayed. Because Dominic Montiglio isn't just an artist. He's a former associate of the Gambino Mafia family, one of New York's most notorious crime families. From ID, I'm Celia Anaskovich, and this is Mafia Tapes. I'm a documentary filmmaker based in Brooklyn. Most of my work centers on crime and those affected by it. I've spent hundreds of hours talking with victims, gangsters, and killers. Over the years, there's one piece of mob lore I've encountered again and again, spoken of in reverence and fear, like a cautionary tale. It's the story of a group of boys, all from the same neighborhood in Brooklyn. These were street kids, Wily, ambitious, searching for a place to belong. Roy DeMeo was searching too. As an aspiring mafioso, he dreamed of rising to the top of the Gambino crime family. To do that, he needed a crew of his own. These directionless neighborhood boys were his ticket. The DeMeo crew, as they'd come to be known, were first recruited to help Roy with his local rackets, stealing cars and loan sharking. But over time, he groomed them, turning them into vicious hitmen. To this day, the DeMeo crew are considered some of the deadliest mafia killers in history. Stuck at the center of this mafia horror story is Dominic Montiglio. This is episode one of eight. Come to hell with us. In many ways, Dominic Montiglio is just like the thousands of other Italian-American kids who grew up in New York in the 50s and 60s. Like my own father, his grandparents had come from Italy in search of a better life. When I first heard interviews with Dominic, I realized the similarities end there. Okay, the second house in is where I grew up. Yeah, right there. You see those white garage doors? On the other side of those garage doors was Nino's bedroom. What you just heard is from a recording of Dominic Montiglio, given to me by his friend, Ross Brodar. Ross is another outsider artist from New York. In this tape, Dominic describes a brick row house in the Bath Beach neighborhood of Brooklyn. Until the age of 13, 
He lived in this house with his mother, grandmother, and his uncle Nino. I lived on the top floor. My grandmother lived in the middle. And then Nino lived on the bottom. That was what's famously known today as the bunker. You see, they removed all the shit. We used to have iron bars on all the windows, and I mean, it was a fortress, man. The first time Ross and Dominic meet is back in 2000 at an art opening in Tribeca. Dominic had just moved back to New York after 15 years in witness protection, looking to restart his life. So yeah, we were, we're down at the place. Everybody's showing their work, and I see this guy. He's dressed in a suit, like a pinstripe suit, hair slicked back, glasses on. And um, he's kind of standing in front of these abstract paintings that were really interesting. And after a few minutes of, of looking at it, I went up to him and I said, that's really interesting, you know? I, you think you're really talented, man. And he goes, it's all shits and giggles. And he just walked away, just walked away from me. Despite inauspicious beginnings, Dominic and Ross find something in one another, a kinship, and the two men become inseparable. We were sort of, you know, companions from the art world. But then over the years, I sort of became, as Dominic would call it, his Jerry Maguire, his kind of like right-hand man. So in 2001, when Dominic starts having relationship troubles and needs a place to live, he gives Ross a call. He said, you know, can I come stay at your studio for a couple weeks, man? I got to get the hell out of here. And, you know, I just need some space. I can't live with this chick right now. Well, those two weeks turned into two and a half years. At the time, Ross knows nothing of Dominic's backstory, his family history, his other life. But the old Dominic, the Dominic that Ross doesn't know, never died. Beneath the paint, the mustache, and the trappings of a new life, the kid from Brooklyn is alive and well. You can't escape a past like Dominic's. You can't outrun your secrets. So when I started going up to Dom's studio when he was in Brooklyn and we would drink some beers and start, you know, just chatting about stuff, he kind of started letting some stories fly. And and I didn't really, like, at first I was kind of like, is this guy for real? Like, I mean, it just seemed kind of far-fetched. I have a lot of tattoos, and at that time, I'd been getting tattooed by my friend B. Cortez, who lived up in the Bronx, and I went up there to get a tattoo, and I'm telling him about this guy, and he goes, you gotta be kidding me. You know, B. started telling me a little bit about what he knew about him, and I'm like, wow, this guy's for real. Ross learns that Dominic is a former gangster, with ties to the legendary Gambino family hitmen, the DeMeo crew. That's when I kind of first got a grasp on, like, who Dominic was and, and started understanding a bit about, like, you know, who the DeMeo crew was and his uncle was. And, you know, I mean, I knew who Paul Castellano was and, like, you know, the Gambino crime family, but I didn't really know much about that life other than, like, you know, stories you hear here and there. A few months into their new living arrangement, Ross gets an idea. It started out real casual where, you know, like, cause Dom and I would have these, like, you know, I had this huge studio. So he had like a corner set up with his artwork. I had my corner set up and we'd have these epic days and nights where we would just be drinking and, you know, smoking and, 
and making artwork and listening to music and, and telling stories and whatnot. And, and then when we decided to get serious about it, you know, we just started putting the camera on, like when he would start to tell a story, we didn't really have like an agenda. We would just start letting them talk. And, and that's how it started. And then Dominic and Ross strike a deal. We'll make this commitment to each other. Like you give me the place to be, we'll make artwork. I'll tell you my life story in a way that nobody's ever heard it. And you know, the most intimate details, and then we'll have something. And I was like, great, let's do this. Earlier this year, Ross shared with me hours of private conversations from over two decades ago. These recordings were Dominic in his own words. Stories from a man who got caught up with a crew of mafia serial killers and then brought them down by breaking the most important rule of his community. Dominic turned against his friends, his colleagues, his family. He cooperated with the FBI. This is the story I thought I was going to find in Ross's tapes. A story normally reserved for Hollywood screenplays. But what started for me as an interest in a piece of mafia lore took on a life of its own. It's easy to put people in a box, label them good or bad, situations as black or white. Is Dominic a snitch? A traitor? Or is he a victim? a casualty of a community with distorted priorities and twisted morals. Over the course of many months, I confronted friends and adversaries, boarded planes, and put my life in danger, all to get closer to the truth about Dominic Montiglio. I felt bad, I felt really bad, but you know what? It was, uh, I mean, it's it's something I still feel miserable about today. but it was our life. A man who loves to tell a story. So he would come to me, the owner, and say, Dominic, I got a serious problem with these maniacs. They came in there, they put a pistol in my mouth. They told me I got to pay them like three grand a week. And blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, let me find out who these guys are. Let me see if I can straighten it out. Two weeks would go by. I'd go back and say, you know you're messing with you? Dude, that's part of the male crew. A man who in turn became the story. To understand Dominic Montiglio, I started at the beginning. I looked for people who grew up in the Brooklyn neighborhoods that formed Dominic as a child. 60-year-old Tim Hassan is one such person. He grew up in the Flatlands neighborhood of Brooklyn in the 1960s and 70s, with an Irish father and an Italian mother. You know, you play stickball in the street, uh, stickball in the schoolyard, play the street games, uh, you know, ring Levio, uh, kick the can. You know, the girls would uh, jump rope, you know, like normal kids. Tim remembers the influence of the mob in his neighborhood. In fact, it's almost impossible for him to forget. You saw gangsters regularly. They owned a lot of the bars. They owned uh, nightclubs. Uh, you always saw them driving around. I mean, in growing up around there, you could be a kid and you're hanging out there in the corner or at the pizzeria or something like that, and a Cadillac will pull up and some guy will 
I mean, you know who's who and who's connected. Even some of Tim's friends get involved. I have several friends that got involved with the wrong people and wound up dead. I have people that, uh, that did work for them and, and wound up going to prison. It isn't long before Tim drifts down a dangerous path, making questionable choices and running in the wrong circles. My father, when I was a teenager and was doing a lot of the wrong things, he came into my bedroom uh, like two days after my 17th birthday and says, you can do what you want, you just can't do it here. He said, you need to get out, or you need to get your own apartment, or you need to join the military or something. So I wound up joining the military. Looking back on that, he probably saved my life. Anthony Nelson, like Tim, also grew up in Brooklyn. When Anthony is nine years old, he witnesses his first murder. There was a kid that was, that I, I didn't know him well, but I had seen him in the neighborhood, and uh, he wasn't but 50 feet away from me when somebody put a bullet in his head. And uh, to give you an idea, I guess, of different values in Brooklyn at the time, the other nine-year-old that I was with told me, uh, instead of, let's call the cops, he said, let's try to find the dime so we can call the Daily News. I heard they give you a reward if you give them a good story. People, <laughs> life was just a little bit different. People were more streetwise, I think. For a lot of young people in Brooklyn at that time, primarily boys, there were two choices. Either enter that life, the coded language used to describe a life in the mob, or don't, and move in the direction of law and order. Become a cop, join the army. Anthony chose the latter. I guess it it was my upbringing. It was the way uh, that was taught as a child. My father was uh, in the army for uh, 23 years. I was just brought up the proper way not to go in the same direction that some of my friends went to. A couple miles over from where Tim and Anthony grew up is a neighborhood called Bath Beach made famous by the 1977 film Saturday Night Fever. In the opening scene, John Travolta's character, Tony Monero, is swaggering down the sidewalk with a paint can in his hand. He stops at Lenny's Pizza on 86th Street before heading into the hardware store where he works. This is the neighborhood Dominic Montiglio grew up in. Five blocks away from Lenny's Pizza is Cropsey Avenue, and the brick row house he described on his friend Ross's reporting. Dominic's father is out of the picture by the time he's four years old. Dominic doesn't know much about him. He was a boxer, a drunk, and someone best left alone. So his mother's brother, Uncle Nino, steps up and becomes his de facto father figure. What you're about to hear is from an interview Dominic did for a TV special about the American Mafia back in 1994. In the program, Dominic provides a rare glimpse of his elusive uncle and conveys a kind of reverence towards him. My uncle, you know, was probably my biggest role model. His one dream in life was to die in the street with a gun in his hand. You know, and if that's uh, not being proud of being a gangster, 
You know, Nino's the kind of guy that could walk into a, a restaurant and everybody will look up and go, look at the gangster. You know, I mean, he, he, he did what we used to call wearing it, and he wore it 24 hours a day. You know, I mean, you, if you saw him in his bathrobe, he was wearing it. He'd have the dark glasses on, he'd have the bathrobe on, and it was him. He didn't change. In the interview, Dominic lounges in a chair, smoking a cigarette and wearing a pair of dark glasses. It's clear that he's doing his own best impression of wearing it. In the 1950s, Dominic's uncle Nino is a rising star in the Gambino crime family, one of New York's five mafia families. At their peak, the Gambino family are one of the richest and most powerful crime syndicates in American history. In those days, the mob had their hands in everything. Retired NYPD cop Joe Wendling worked tirelessly to bring down the mob. He knows better than most the hold they had on New York City. Oh, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. If you, were, if you wanted to film a movie... You had to see the boys. If you wanted to buy a sanitation truck, you had to see the boys. If you wanted to have a tow truck operation, you had to see the boys. If you wanted a jukebox, a pinball machine, you had to see the boys. If you wanted to have your linen clean, you had to see the boys. You name it. If you wanted to be a rock and roll singer, you had to see the boys. You want to put a bid in on a construction thing. You had to see the boys. You want to ship sand for concrete mix. You had to see the boys. You want to take away uh, debris from a tear down from a. You had to see the boys. It's. Uh, I mean, you you name it, and they were involved in it. At one time, we figured they got ten cents on every dollar spent in New York. Nino takes his young nephew Dominic everywhere, from pickups to meetings and even to dinners with Carlo Gambino, the boss of bosses and the namesake of the family. Like Carlo, Nino is old school. He's discreet and has his own ideas of right and wrong. Be faithful to your wife. Keep to the usual mob activities, like loan sharking. Don't do or sell drugs. And most of all, never turn your back on family. When Dominic is 10 years old, he gets elected class president at PS 163 in Bath Beach, Brooklyn. Uncle Nino forces him to resign. He doesn't like the fact that the job entails telling on his fellow students. That makes Dominic a snitch, a stool pigeon. And Nino isn't going to have one of those in his family. Tim, the gravelly-voiced guy from Flatlands we heard from earlier, isn't surprised when I tell him this story. Well, you know, being labeled, uh, you know, a rat in, you know, the way that we grew up was the worst thing that you could be labeled. If you were a rat, you were the worst person. You weren't really, weren't even supposed to talk to the police. Uh, Even if somebody shot you, and they ask you who shot you, you're not supposed to tell them. I mean, that's the way that we grew up. So I understand that aspect of it. 
Dominic's mother, Marie Gaggi, worries about her brother Nino's influence on her son. She doesn't want Dominic to be part of that life. In time, Marie meets an honest man named Anthony Montiglio and marries him. He quickly whisks them away to Long Island, the suburbs, as if she's trying to shield her son from her brother's influence and take the Brooklyn out of the boy. Despite his frustration over leaving the big city, it's here that Dominic gets the chance to start over. He takes his stepfather's last name and begins a new life as a typical American teenager. He was very likable, easy to hang out with. I mean, of course, we've been friends since then. He was a normal American guy that was a little tough, played sports, and you didn't want to mess with him. That's Richie Emelo, Dominic's childhood best friend. Richie meets Dominic in high school after he and his family move from Brooklyn to Levittown, Long Island. Five years ago, this was a vast checkerboard of potato farms on New York's Long Island. Today, a community of 60,000 persons living in 15,000 homes, all built by one firm. This is Levittown, one of the most remarkable housing developments ever conceived. Richie and Dominic find an immediate connection. He came from the Gambinos, and I came from the Columbos. So we grew up in similar ways. My father was just a bookie, though. He was, you know, I think uh, Nino, his uncle, who basically took over his uh, patriarchal duties, was a little more active in other areas of mafia life. Stronger than their proximity to that life, Richie and Dominic connect over their shared love of singing and music. Oftentimes, they go to Jones Beach just to sing. We had our own area, and so like you get groups like the Devotions or some groups from Brooklyn, and our groups like the Imaginations and our, our group, the Five Valens. Uh, and what you do then, you sit in this one spot, everybody knew where it was, and uh, one guy would call out a song, let's say it is still of the night. Then every group that was there would sing in the still of the night, their version of it. It was better than beach volleyball, for instance. It's what we had to do. We had this talent to harmonize. It became a wonderful fun to compete on that level with other groups that were better or worse than you. And it was just honest, clean fun. No drugs, no alcohol, just a beach and singing. <laughs> Both Dominic and Richie even start their own bands, emulating the doo-wop style of the early 60s. Richie's group is the Nick and the Knacks, while Dominic sings tenor for The Four Directions. Well, I don't know what to tell you about The Four Directions, except that they had a better lead singing that really than I did, but they were good. Dominic had a really good voice. In 1964, at Decca Records, with a 23-piece orchestra and three female backup singers, one of whom is Dionne Warwick's sister, Dee Dee, Dominic's group, The Four Directions, lay down the vocals for Tonight We Love. Dominic in there? He's the one with the perfect pitch. In their brief time, the Four Directions perform up and down the eastern seaboard, opening for the likes of the Shirelles, Little Anthony and the Imperials. They even make it to TV, 
performing on an American bandstand-type show called Upbeat. Another up-and-coming group performed that day as well, a duo named Sonny and Cher. In that moment, it feels like the band is destined for greatness. There's just one problem. Dominic's uncle, Nino, doesn't approve. His uncle didn't want him to be in a singing group. Dominic was more than a singer. Dominic could play a number of instruments and he could write. Dominic has a natural talent. But to Nino, it doesn't matter. Nino thinks of the music business as despicable and refuses to help his nephew, even though Uncle Carlo Gambino allegedly runs a record label. Nino has other plans for Dominic. After graduating from high school, Dominic gets an assembly line job with Grumman Aircrafts, a now-defunct producer of both military and civilian aircrafts. Dominic isn't on the job long before he has had enough. Again, this is from the recordings he made with Ross. This foreman, his name was Bob Jurassic, told me to clean the metal chips out of the coolant. And I said, no, no, no. And I said, I'm a tool I make. I don't do that. And he said, well, if you don't fucking clean it, you're not, this was his line, you're not getting your turkey for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I said, I don't want my fucking turkey. He said, are you getting nasty with me? And I threw a wrench at him. And he said, you're fired. And I said, no shit. In 1966, Dominic is unemployed, and the country is in the middle of a war. So I left Grumman, and on the way home, I had to take the Hempstead Turnpike to get back to Levittown. And I passed, there was the Army, the Marines, the Navy, and the Coast Guard, the recruiters. And I was driving, and I said, eh, let me see what this Vietnam fucking thing is about. So I stopped the Army recruiter, and I walked in, and I joined up. They were real happy just to have some poor slob just willing to join at that point because they needed bodies in Vietnam, right? So I joined, and I did it. The only thing left to do is tell Uncle Nino of his decision. Here's a clip from the same 1994 TV special about the American Mafia. Dominic is particularly vulnerable when speaking about his uncle. When I joined the Green Berets, I went over to my Uncle Nino's house. And it was in the evening. And I walked in all proud and, you know, figuring I was going to go save the, save the world from communism. And I told him I joined the Green Berets. And it was like a top elite, you know, fighting unit in the army. And he just sat down in a chair. And all of you, he just looked at me and he goes, boy, you are an idiot. He says, I always thought you were an idiot, but you are an idiot. And I said, what? He says, you don't die for these politicians and you don't die for generals. You die for us. You die for your family. This interview helped me understand Dominic a little bit more. I can hear the sadness in his voice when he talks about his Uncle Nino and the pain of realizing that Nino would never approve of a life outside his family. Unlike Tim or Anthony, Dominic didn't have people steering him towards a positive future. Learning about Dominic's childhood helped me understand that getting out of Brooklyn, out of a life of crime, out of danger, was going to be difficult 
and it was a challenge Dominic Montiglio would eventually face all on his own. In 1970, after a year and a half in Vietnam, Dominic is honorably discharged. During his time in the Army, he receives a silver star and a bronze star for bravery during battle. Soon after returning home, Dominic finds himself at a cousin's birthday party, hosted by Uncle Nino, in the same brick row house of his youth. It's here, in his uncle's cramped living room filled with family and friends, that Dominic first sees a dark-eyed beauty named Denise. Richie, Dominic's friend from Levittown, remembers her fondly. Beautiful, loquacious, Italian, Sophia Loren style, um, great uh, cook. She made those recipes from the magazines look perfect. Lovely, lovely, warm woman who was really dedicated to Dominic in those days. Uh, she's everything an Italian mother would love their son to marry an Italian girl like Denise. Dominic and Denise fall in love. They quickly elope and move out west. Denise has romantic visions of a life in California, and Dominic wants to be as far away from Brooklyn as possible. They can't afford San Francisco, so settle on the next best thing, Berkeley. Berkeley was Berkeley. It was a bunch of fucking wacko fucking hippies, LSD and peyote and mescaline, DMT, STP, you know, I mean, whatever fucking drug, man. Dominic and Denise move hoping for a fresh start. And for a brief moment, life is good. Dominic even starts playing music again, jamming with his old pal, Richie. Hang out a lot, hang out at his house, play music, sing with a couple, you know, we go over to Mount Tamapias. You know, we were like we always were, close friends, really nearby, doing kind of the same thing. Very happy with his wife, who's a wonderful woman. One day, Dominic, his wife Denise, and Richie all catch a new release at the local cinema. A three-hour epic chronicling the lives of an Italian-American crime family led by the powerful Vito Corleone. The Godfather. Once they play the right music with the right picture, you're done. You're a sucker. You're in. You know, there's no way you can go. It's just, they got you. The film that is captivating a nation hits particularly close to home for two Italian boys from Brooklyn. I knew the movie had a psychological effect on both of us, an emotional appeal. That was undeniable uh, because we connected with those people. Those are us. About the way we grew up. Not some dope in Iowa, you know, his, his fuzzy cousin with a tractor and that crap. We, made, we came from the streets in New York. We identified with that, and they, they impressed us. They motivated us. They changed us. Dominic and Denise know it's time to go home. When we saw The Godfather, you know, the wedding scene and, 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 and the La Familia thing all kind of meshed, and we just got homesick. 
and it was almost almost surrealistic because when we walked out after seeing the film, it's like kind of like we uh, we just kind of looked at each other and said, "It's time to go home." According to Dominic, The Godfather inspires him to make an unimaginably important decision in his life. I told you he's a storyteller, and this does make for a good story. But is it true? Does it even matter? Like I said before, I don't know if it was uh, an ascent or a descent in, 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 in my life, but... It was definitely where I had to go home. But what if he never saw the movie? What if he never returned home? What if he chose a different path? Dominic didn't want to do that, really. He didn't have to. He could have had a whole life in California, even if he was just managing a building and playing in a band. He would have been very happy. You know, he didn't... The uncle kind of, you know, kind of pleaded with him to come back. It isn't just Richie who tells me this. All of Dominic's friends from his past mentioned something similar. It was never Dominic's intention to become a criminal. And in many ways, he was trying to run away from that life. But waiting for Dominic in Brooklyn is his elusive surrogate father, Uncle Nino. And according to his friends, and even Dominic himself, his uncle was always in control. They fucked up my life. You know, my uncles, everybody, so I became a miserable person. This would become a regular point of contention in the conversations I had with people. Who was at fault for the way Dominic's life turned out? Digging into the tapes he made with Ross, I found a second, lesser-known story about the motivation behind Dominic's return home. I had no intentions of coming back to New York and becoming a criminal. I came back to New York because my mother was dying. All right, that was number one. My mother had Hodgkin's disease. Marie Montiglio passed away on November 22nd, 1972. Tragically, Denise found out she was pregnant with Dominic's first child, a baby girl, that same day. Marie's wake is held at Cusimano and Russo, an elegant white stucco building with red Spanish tiles. Her body is laid out in the windowless rectangular room. A small golden crucifix hangs above her head. Here, people will pay their final respects. In the days that follow, Dominic is forced to face the reality that he's becoming a father without any job prospects. Nino, playing the part of helpful uncle, offers a solution. And Nino grabbed me one Sunday. You know, we were over there for dinner in Brooklyn. And he said, you know, now you gotta get serious. You know, he said, you got a kid coming on. You got a wife. You're gonna have a family. What do you plan on doing? And I said, you know, to tell you the truth, don't. I really don't know. He said, well, look, he said, I got this chance to buy this car service. He says, I'll buy it. I'll put up half the money and you would run the car service. It was a plaza car service. 
on Avenue U and King's Highway. Dominic has been running away from that life for 26 years. But with his mother gone and a family to provide for, things are about to change. And then Nino asked me, he says, you know, you want to pick up another $50 a week? You know, go into the city, meet Chuck Anderson. He was the major D at the 21 Club. Pick up 50 bucks from him and keep it. And I started doing that, and eventually, you know, he sold the car service. And he said, now, you know, you just be my driver. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that was... Like I said, that was either a gradual ascent or descent in, into the life. But, I mean, I chose to do that. And wow, that's where I first met Roy DeMeo. Roy DeMeo, the head of the DeMeo crew. It's the 70s and 80s. The crew is notorious. They're considered one of the most sadistic, violent, and feared squads running the Flatlands and Canarsie neighborhoods in Brooklyn. They're the enforcers of the Gambino crime family. Forget to pay a debt? You'll have the DeMeo crew to answer to. Countless people I interviewed for this series knew the DeMeo crew by name, as well as their sadistic and violent history. Uh, There's the businessman mobster that knows how to make a buck out of just about anything, and then there's the... Roy DeMeo and Anthony Center mobster that do it my way or you die. And this crew is probably the worst in the history of organized crime. Uh, they committed probably over 200 murders over a 10-year period. How they killed them and what they did to them later on uh, kind of made you wonder about what, uh, what these people are really like and why they walk in the earth. In just one year's time, Dominic goes from wanting nothing to do with the mob to being associated with one of the deadliest crews in mob history. The DeMeo crew was, aside from being big time money makers and every type of racket you could think of, they were also all killers. And the type of killers that dismembered bodies and made them disappear. As I grapple with how to tell Dominic's story, I decide to go back to the tapes Ross has given me. Listening to them again and again, it's clear there are things missing. Conversations cut short. Topics that go unaddressed. According to Ross, there's a good reason for that. I know a lot of things that won't, I'll never talk about. I've heard things I'll never repeat. Why tell the story now if we won't get the whole story? Because not all stories need to be told. And not all pieces of every story need to be told. Like any movie, right? When you, when you shoot a film and you're telling a story, scenes get cut. It's, it's kind of the same thing when you're telling somebody's life story. Like By, by not telling the whole story, aren't we, aren't we sort of giving a revisionist history of the truth? Perhaps but it doesn't make it less poignant or less meaningful. The difference between you and I is you're a journalist, I'm his friend. You don't have much to lose by digging and digging and digging. I have something to lose and perhaps Dominic might have something to lose by disclosing 
uh, information or stories that were told that don't need to be told or don't need to be heard. And my job as his friend is to protect him. And again, here's the kicker. I don't even know if it's the fucking truth. It may not even be. It could be bullshit. Ross has a job. Everyone I interviewed in this series has a job, a motivation, a reason for wanting to share their stories, and a reason for wanting to withhold them. And believe me, you're not the first journalist that asked me, well, what is it? Or well, can you tell us something? Uh, it's just uh, nobody's getting it out of me. You know, it's just stuff nobody's getting. I would always keep my mouth shut because that's my word. The word I gave, that's the word I honor. It's not my place to close cases. It's not my place to give people closure. Ross is keeping his mouth shut. So are a lot of the people I reached out to. Is this the code of the mafia or something else? We've been sold the same narrative of the mafia for decades. From The Godfather to Goodfellas to The Sopranos. No matter how many times we tell a mob story, it's always the same. Purposefully or inadvertently, we end up glamorizing the lifestyle and actions of dangerous men. We use words like honor, family, omerta, to cover up words like greed, murder, and lies. It's business. We're soldiers. We follow codes, orders. Most of my work centers on crime. As I said at the start of this episode, I've spent hundreds of hours talking with gangsters and killers. But my highest priority has always been a focus on the victims. In the process, I've made it my mission to learn how to cut through the layers of glamorization, the layers of machismo and duplicity, to avoid the easy story, to get to the truth. So I'm not on this journey because I want to tell yet another mob story. I'm here because I'm interested in getting answers to the questions others have shied away from. Questions that live in the gray areas. Questions like, was Dominic's life predestined? Or did he have a choice? Given the cloud that hangs over his time and that life, what's Dominic's motivation for telling his stories? And what can Dominic's stories teach us? about the stories we tell ourselves. You know, I don't blame anything that I've done in my life on anybody with me. You know, I made all the decisions by myself. It's one of the things that I'm proud of. I fucked it all up, but at least it was me making it. There was nobody pulling my fucking strings. What I found through my digging is a man battling with the two sides of his nature. The hero and the villain. The truth-teller and the con man. The lover and the fighter. The mortal and the immortal. There was no puppeteer up here, including Nino. Including Paul Castellano. Nobody pulled my fucking strings. You know, and anybody will tell you that. Nobody controlled me. Because I was uncontrolled. I'm still uncontrollable. Dominic Santamaria Montiglio. A boy who might have become class president. 60s pop star. Decorated war hero. 
or beloved family man, instead became something else entirely. Mafia Tapes is produced by Gigantic Pictures for ID. The show is hosted, written, and produced by me, Celia Anaskovich. Story producers are Caitlin Colford and Maggie Robinson-Katz. Producers are Pamela Ryan and Jeff Spivak. Music by Allison Leighton-Brown. Sound designer is Sam Baer. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression, perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.